In August of 2015, we went to Lake Hartwell for the day, which is on the border of South Carolina and Georgia. Towards the end of the afternoon, we had migrated over to a spot where we had, you know, beached the boat. I went to jump into the water one more time and I dove off the back of the boat. I just hit the bottom, and I even remember hitting the bottom thinking, oh shoot, I hit my head. My brother-in-law actually saw me floating face down almost immediately and came out into the water, grabbed me, and you know started pulling me to shore. And I'm like, I thought I would kick with my legs to try to help us get towards the shore, and I just thought and thought, tried as hard as I could, and nothing. And it was at that point I was telling him, I was like, I, can I cannot move my legs. Hey there, and welcome to Pwncast. Jeremy Amayo and John Heisler here with a special episode. Today, we're going to be talking about a patient's journey through critical illness and ultimately what happens after leaving the hospital. We've invited two special guests to aid us in our discussion, Ryan and Sarah Gibson. So Sarah and Ryan, welcome to the Thank show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So to kick things off, I would like to read an excerpt from Sarah's blog. And this is part of a poem called Welcome to Holland by Emily Pearl Kingsley. So here it goes. It's like planning a fabulous vacation trip to Italy. You buy a bunch of guidebooks and make your wonderful plans. The Colosseum, the Michelangelo's David, the gondolas in Venice. After months of eager anticipation, the day finally arrives. And you pack your bags and off you go. Several hours later, the plane lands and the stewardess comes in and says, Welcome to to Holland. Holland, you say. What do you mean, Holland? I signed up for Italy. I'm supposed to be in Italy. All of my life, I've dreamed of going to Italy. But there's been a change in the flight plan. They've landed in Holland, and there you must stay. Ryan, Sarah, you both have had your own welcome to Holland moment, where things didn't necessarily turn out exactly as you expected. Ryan, can you share your story with us? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, obviously, since not everyone can see me, uh, I'm in a wheelchair. Uh, I have a spinal cord injury, and I sustained it at C7, and I did that in a diving accident. Can you tell us what happened after your brother pulled you through the water? Yeah, I mean, I think we all had a pretty good idea of what was happening. Um, so we called 911, but since we were actually at an island, they had to figure out where we were at. So it took them about 45 minutes to yeah. get there. From there, it was a 45-minute ride on the ambulance to Greenville Hospital. As a caveat, we don't necessarily endorse or promote and are not affiliated with any of the facilities mentioned in this podcast. All facilities mentioned are merely a component of Ryan and Sarah's story. Getting admitted into the ER is pretty much a blur, and they, they brought me in for x-rays and, and whatnot, and that's when they found out that I had a C7 burst fracture. So my C7 vertebrae actually burst into like three pieces. And at that point, obviously, my spinal cord was pinched. My spine was a little bit out of alignment. Can you tell us specifically about your ICU stay? They, uh, they brought me into the ICU. They put me in traction. So, you know, I was laying down, and I had the, the bow screwed into the, just onto my scalp, and then it was pulling my head up. I think it was about 60 pounds. Yeah, they said it took wow. like 60 wow. or 65 pounds to line my yeah. spine back up. My ICU stay consisted of seven days. So uh, we came in on a Saturday 
Uh, we had surgery that Monday. You know, I mean, obviously, other than the reason that I had sustained a spinal cord injury, their main concern was my blood pressure, wasn't it? Yeah, they were waiting for him to be stable enough, like to withstand some. I can't. I don't really know the numbers and what you know what they were waiting on, other than blood pressure. But that was. I remember that being a big thing that they needed to make sure he was more stable on before they moved him down into a regular hospital room. So. Yeah, so we'd kind of be up and down. I'd I'd be doing good, and they'd be like, okay, if you keep this up for like another 12 hours or a day, you're good. We're going to get you out of here. And then, you know, and we're going to move you into a regular room. And then it would be like it'd go back down on the next one. You know, some of the medical professionals listening might know this, but I don't, you know, maybe not everybody knows. But with a spinal cord injury, uh, I don't have any function really below my chest. The muscles in your legs are what pump the blood back up to your heart. For someone with a spinal cord injury, I mean, obviously, it's very traumatizing to your body because all your blood just goes into your legs and pools up there. So, you know, blood pressure is a major concern for people with spinal cord injuries. When I do go to the doctor, you can tell like their face is just like, oh, no. yeah. And you're, you're like, really low. You yeah. And you're like, you're like, well, you know, like I now I've gotten used to it and I tell them what it should be before they take it. I was going to ask what you normally run. I usually say 90 over 60 and it's right in that neighborhood. What do you remember most about your ICU stay? The moment I recall the most, I mean, there's a few moments, but um, I remember you know, when I was being screened to see if I could get into the Shepherd Center and the woman, the representative asked, you know, like, oh, you know, like how, how is your physical therapy coming along? And we were kind of like looked and we're like physical therapy, like we haven't done anything. And she was like, really? And she was like, we need like, you know, kind of snapped her fingers. We need a physical therapist over here. Like, you know, <laughs> and so they had me do a little bit of physical therapy you know, maybe 20 minutes or so. And then I think that Friday, that occupational therapist came and it was like, you know, so excited that 20 minutes, you know, I sat up in bed, you know, I mean, I really, the best way to describe it is I felt like a wet noodle. I mean, it was like just sitting with my legs hanging off the bed and trying to sit upright, you know, like they say, keep that positive attitude, you know, keep it up. And it was like, that was the thing after, you know, even if the physical therapist had 20 minutes, came over and did something for 20 minutes or, you know, the occupational therapist came and did something for 20 minutes, I was doing something. And in my mind, it was doing something besides waiting for my body to heal, which obviously the human body is powerful and it does take time to heal before you can get physical. But, you know, I wanted to do at least something physical, you know, instead of just kind of laying there waiting to get better. So Sarah, speaking to uh, what we as healthcare providers could do better to better serve the family or the patient. Um. So I want to start by saying that I actually like was very pleased with his care, especially in ICU. I, I thought they did a phenomenal job of taking care of him. When Rye moved from ICU down to the like main hospital room, uh, one thing that I did notice uh, was that the communication between the different teams that were taking care of him could have been a little bit better. There's just a lot of different people coming in. And I remember one particular instance, and it's it's kind of blurry to me exactly what the problem was. I remember noticing um because rye was asleep and he had some medication for anxiety that had put him to sleep so he was really out and i noticed that his breathing was really heavy and so i went to check just to kind of feel him to see what was going on and i i could tell that he had a fever so i called somebody in and then a doctor came in and i don't remember how they decided to treat him but i remember them telling me what the what they were going to do and i was like okay that's fine i'll just kind of keep my eye on him make sure everything's good and then some other doctor came in like i can't tell you how long after that but um and he was like okay so this is what we're gonna do and it was completely different from what they had told me what they were already doing to treat him and what you know what our plan of action was for this fever that he was having and how just how they were going to take care of it 
So after your ICU stay, you were moved to a regular floor and evaluated for rehab at the Shepherd Center? The Shepherd Center is in the southeast. It's like the biggest spinal cord injury hospital. Um, actually, in the country, it's one of the top two or three. So, you know, obviously, we live here in Atlanta. To be here in Atlanta at a spinal cord injury hospital is, like, amazing. It's right close to home. It's in your backyard. So it was almost like an interview in the ICU. And, they were, you know, they were kind of the, – they had the physical therapist come in, and I had to sit up in the bed. And, you know, the the representative just wanted to see how long I could sit up for. So, I mean, you know, I didn't talking about, like, having your legs off the side of the bed or anything. It was just going from a laying position to sitting up. And it was – it was very tough. I remember. We didn't know at the time um, how lucky he was to get in so quickly, actually, because we once we were there, we had heard, oh, what we waited a month to get in. We waited more than a month to get in. Like, I don't, I don't even remember the timelines, but she had him. I think she came and talked to me and a couple hours later, she's like, all right, he's in. He's as soon as he's ready to go. Once we got to the Shepherd Center, they definitely give you the warm and fuzzies as soon as you get in the door. So that was really, really nice. Like, it's going to be okay, even though you're not really feeling that way in the moment. Um, and, you know, people said this to me, too. They'd be like, oh, you're going to be fine. What do you mean I'm going to be fine? Look at me, you know. <laughs> and now I can look back on it and see somebody like, oh, you have this, you know, you have this light about you. You're going to be great. But, yeah, it was amazing when we got in there. Day one, they rolled me in, you know, in a stretcher, and they slide me into the bed, and it's like they're measuring me for a wheelchair, you know, for a temporary one that I'm going to use while I'm in the hospital. And day two, they're like, all right, get out of bed, get into this thing. Like, I barely sat up in bed. You're like, what are you talking about? So we got right into it while we were there, fortunately. We spent two and a half months at Shepherd Center, Mm -hmm. like, actually living there. Um, Doing, I was doing therapy five days a week. Well, really... Five days a week and then a light day on Saturday. And, you know, I mean, it's it's really a huge lifestyle change. So, I mean, you, you know, when you open your eyes and wake up in the morning, I mean, it's like, how do I get out of bed? You know, I mean, you, you really have to start right from there. And then you think about all these little tasks, like how do I, you know, as a quad without great hand function, how do I squeeze the tube of toothpaste to get enough toothpaste out of there? How do I open my shampoo bottle? Like, you know, this crazy little stuff that you just never, ever would have thought of. Uh, if I'm going to have a granola bar for breakfast or something like, how do I even get that open? You know, like, so. It was especially um, hard for me too, as a wife to watch him struggle and his OT would be like, don't help him. And I'm like, but he can't get that open. (laughs) He's like, he's got to try. And so, you know, when she wasn't looking, sometimes I'd be like, here, just let me open that for you real quick. (laughs) And I had to learn how to back off, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to sit there and watch him struggle and have to like relearn how to do these basic things that we took for granted. After some of the dust from your hospitalization settled and you finished intensive rehabilitation, what was it like returning to normal life? The hard, one hard transition period for me was I came home at Christmas time. So, you know, I mean, you go into Christmas time, that's time spent with family. There's anticipation of Christmas. Then you go from Christmas time to New Year's. That's exciting. My sister's also a teacher. So she was off for that whole time. Well, now all of a sudden, like, you know, I mean, you kind of get a little bit sad after Christmas and New Year's because it's like, oh, there was all that buildup and now it's gone. Now I had it like doubled. So, like all those holidays to go through, all that anticipation and like all of a sudden it's gone. You know, I would have a hard time, you know, getting going in the morning before I started working. I took like a month off between actually stopping therapy and starting to transition back to work. I started off two days a week, but, you know, you had to kind of embrace a new normal was the best way of working out. You know, when I get in the car to go somewhere, uh, it probably takes me like eh, three, four minutes to get in and then it'll be another two, three minutes to get out. Um, and I mean, <laughs> you know, 
on occasion, I'll like look around and be like, man, that person got in the car at the same time as me. They're gone. <laughs> and it's like, you know, like I don't really think about it anymore. It's just kind of the new normal, like going and getting in the car. It's going to take four minutes. It just does, you know. And it's funny because people will ask me sometimes when it rains, what happens? I'm like, I get wet. <laughs> it is what it is, you know. Um, I think it's just baby steps too. It is, like, yeah. Because you just choose to like pick something that you're going to be excited about. And, you know, and slowly he was able to build up on the things that he could do on his own. Word on the street is you're playing rugby now. Yeah, so um, uh, playing wheelchair rugby um, at the Shepherd Center, they have a peer support program. So people that are already in chairs come in and they talk to people that are new to this injury. They told me about wheelchair rugby and I was like, they practice twice a week. They're like, you have to come watch. So I was like, instantly went and watched. I was just hooked. I mean, it's the coolest looking thing ever, you know I mean? You play in a different wheelchair. The wheelchair looks like it just came off of gladiators. I mean, it's like, it's got, you know, the wheels are really cambered out. It's all made out of aluminum. Uh, It has spoke guards on it. Because, I mean, you you can just, like, go full speed and just run into each other. I mean, it's... That's it's crazy. Yeah, the, the object of the game. That, like, yeah. the thing that happens. No, that's the object of the game. They hit yeah. each other as hard as they can and try to get the ball. And when he told me he wanted to play this game right after a spinal cord injury, I was like, uh, what? Yeah. So, I mean, not only was it a good way to stay in shape and stay athletic, it was also a great way to meet people and, you know, just have that camaraderie. And I love it. And, and you know, the team travels. And traveling with the team is like the funnest thing, you know, because you're like, you know, you're going to hotels, you go out to dinner together. And it's like, you know, for a weekend, you kind of live together. And, and, you know, it's funny because you think about do people in wheelchairs, you know, like, oh, my friend is in a wheelchair. You should meet him. Or do you know him? And you're like, no, I don't know everybody in a wheelchair, you know, but like, uh, but, you know, you're like, you see that when you're at those rugby tournaments, you're like, darn I'm playing into this. Like, obviously, we're a team. So, we, you know, we go to certain places together. Like, did you see that two guys got out of those wheelchairs? They're friends because they're in wheelchairs. You're like, darn, it's not why. <laughs> we share common interests. Tell us a little bit more about your support system. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm very fortunate to have an amazing support system. Uh, like I said, when we first started, you know, we had boat day. Uh, we recollect boat day as being awesome and it just <laughs> ended bad. But we had a lot of fun. So, I mean... I really do enjoy spending time with my family, um, which is, you know, a huge support system. Uh, Sarah and I are very close to both my family and her family. So, you know, I mean, we've had a lot of support, you know, emotionally people coming around um, and then close family friends. I mean, we've just had a lot of support and from our local community. I would definitely say, I mean, we had so many people show up at Greenville, which we didn't expect to see anybody. We kind of were like, no, we'll see when we come back to Atlanta. But we had so many friends and family coming to visit him when he was in ICU that they had to move us to a bigger room because we were crowding up the hallway. And then uh, at Shepherd Center, even uh, we were lucky enough to have it right in our backyard where friends and family could come visit often. So it was almost like he would have therapy all day. And then after, after he was done with therapy and after I would come home from work or come back to the hospital from work, um, we'd have a bunch of people lined up to come visit him. And that just kind of helped keep us upbeat and be like, oh, yeah, we're doing great. And thanks for coming by to see us. And um, and when we got home, I mean, his sister and her husband, they modified their home so we could come live with them because we couldn't go back to our second floor apartment. Like, that was amazing. And they let us live there. I mean, we we just moved out of their place a year. It was a year we lived with them. Yeah. And uh, and we've just, just moved, moved back into an apartment. In yeah. yeah, in December. So that was amazing. My mom has been um, massaging him once a week since his injury, just trying to help him with 
you know, his uh, blood pressure and muscle atrophy and just anything else that he could benefit from massage therapy. She's been doing that since he's been in the hospital. Um, How has your injury impacted your relationship with family and friends? It's funny that you say that. I It bothers me when someone would be like, my foot hurts. Oh, but you have it. Like, you know, I'm sorry I said that. And I'm like, hey, your, your foot still hurts. That's valid. <laughs> you know, like, I don't care if you say that. So, um, I mean, it, you know, as any social situation, you know, I want to come into a circle of eight people and just look up at them. And instead of them, like, getting on one knee or, or doing something strange, don't, you know... Personally, and I can't really say this for everyone. Some people might want to be treated differently, but most people that I know, you know, I mean, you just kind of want to look like everyone else. One thing I would want to say to people, you know, just that, you know, and how they treat you in this new situation is just to handle the approach more like rather than with sympathy, with empathy. Like if this was you, how would you want to be treated? Because I think a lot more times people just want to be sympathetic to your situation. And that's great. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Um, but they're just kind of like, let me, let me help you with that. Are you okay? Like every little thing that he does, like, it's like he's made a glass and like, you appreciate that and you appreciate that people care and you, you can definitely see that. But, um, you know, for him, he's, he's like you said, he's, he's a grown man. Like he wants to be able to do things on his own and he can do things on his own and just kind of live his life and live a normal life and not have everybody look at him like, Oh, poor guy. Yeah, I guess Sometimes you just want people to understand that you're just another normal guy. As you were saying that, I was thinking about like even when I fall, sometimes I fall and, uh, you know, like when I fall, it's kind of embarrassing. You're like, oh, I just fell over. You know, if I do need help to get back up, you know, again, I'm going to tell you if I'm really hurt, you know, I don't need somebody, you know, it, it, it makes you feel weird. Like if you were to trip and, and hit a curb and you kind of fall on your face, you're like looking around like, God. But he saw that, you know, and you kind of get back up and you want to go. And then like five people walk over and like, are you okay? And you're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. My pride's hurt. That's about it. You know, <laughs> the next person, like, you're like, you want it. Yeah, exactly. You want to be alone. You know, you're like, it's the same thing for me. Like if I fall, I'm like, I'm like, let's pretend this never happened. I'll either get up myself or someone else can help me get up. So uh, I don't think I've seen you stop smiling since you've been in this room. So I guess my question is, uh, were there any days where you felt like, you just couldn't do it anymore. And if so, uh, how did you get through those moments? Um, definitely there were plenty of days that I remember that, you know, I, it was a hard time. Um, the ICU in the hospital stay was kind of a blur. And Sarah had a good way of putting it one time is that, you know, every person in the ICU, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to them or this is the worst time in their life, no matter what their injury is. But uh, I remember having a harder time at home uh, especially when I transitioned from inpatient to outpatient and then actually finished outpatient and was staying at home. Um, just because it would be, you know, the smallest task, something that you could do really easily and, you know, uh, opening the refrigerator and getting something out of the refrigerator, I dropped like a whole jar of pickles on the floor one night. And it was like, then I couldn't even move. Like I, you know, like I dropped the jar of pickles and they fell on the tile floor and it was like, Sarah, come here. I'm just driving. Because I'm like, now there's pickle juice all over the place. And I'm in the middle of it. And there's glass. I mean, I definitely had a lot of moments where it would be, well, not a lot, but, you know, moments where it would be like you'd be doing something and you'd just absolutely lose patience. And, you know, it'd be like you'd throw something and, and you know, have kind of like a temper tantrum or a fit. And then, you'd, you know, and the worst part about it was that you would realize you'd be like, 
well, that's over. Now I have to clean this up. <laughs> that was dumb. <laughs> Everything, you know, like, why would you get mad and throw your phone? Now you go pick your phone up and it's broken. What have those moments taught you? I think what we kind of learned from it is like to let ourselves have those feelings and to let ourselves like have, cause it's a hard thing. It's, it's not like there's no place for feeling that way or feeling bad or depressed or have anxiety about what's happened because it was a major life change. Um, I would say the hardest part about it was letting go of what life used to be and accepting what it is now. Um, yes. That, it, that was the huge. toughest thing. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and every day that went by, we we're just getting further and further away from this life that we've always known and, and just having to let go of that and, and embrace this, this very different life that at first doesn't really seem that appealing was really, really hard, really, really hard to accept and really hard to grasp. But to just let it have its place and then move forward. And then if we need another moment like that, just kind of have that moment again. Um, but just not to stay there because I mean, we're, when this happened, I was 25, you were 26, right? You're 27 now I'm 26. So, um, you know, we have a lot of life left to live. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot more coming and we just, we don't want to be down about it all the time. Not that we aren't ever, it's still hard. There's still things about it that are hard. There will always be things about it that are hard, but, um, but we just don't want to be bummed out all the time about it. So we kind of just decided that let's, let's just make the most of it. So the introductory poem that we read doesn't stop there. Let me read the second half. Everyone you know is busy coming and going from Italy, and they're all bragging about what a wonderful time they had there. And for the rest of your life, you will say, yes, that is where I was supposed to go. That is what I had planned. The pain of that will never, ever go away, because the loss of that dream is a very significant loss. But if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't get to Italy, you may never be free to enjoy the very special, the very lovely things about Holland. Ryan, Sarah, thank you so much for being vulnerable with us and sharing your story. Uh, I think I speak for all of our listeners in saying that uh, this was a very inspiring talk. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for everyone for listening to our stories. All right. So for all the listeners out there, I really want to summarize some of the key points that we talked about during this episode. So I have five major themes that I think we can really take home. The first is that as ICU providers and really as medical providers in general, we have to remember that coming to the ICU is the worst moment of a patient's life, the worst moment of that patient's family's life. What's routine to us isn't necessarily routine to the patient's. So maybe we need to slow down sometimes. The second point is that we only see a snapshot of a patient's life at the bedside. Sometimes we don't know who they were before they came to the ICU or family dynamics and how those things contribute to their medical care. Third is that life after critical illness is going to be different. Whether the patient came in for pneumonia or spinal cord injury or ARDS, life afterwards is going to change. And so expectations need to be managed, and maybe we need to do a better job preparing families for that and preparing our patients for that. The fourth point is that individuals with disability are people. They're people first. They don't always want sympathy. They don't always want you to feel bad for them. They just want you to treat them like people. And the final point is that we would all do well by our patients to communicate better. 
So that's about it. The final thing that we have to share with you is the Ryan Sarah P. Gibson Foundation. Sarah, could you tell us a little bit about this foundation that y'all started? Yeah, I'll speak to that um, briefly. Um, so basically, after Ryan's injury, um, his mom, my mom, and aunts uh, wanted to do something to kind of help us with, like, you know, the medical expenses and just those kind of unexpected things that come your way and also help other people. So they had the idea to start a foundation. The goal for this year, there we have a run in October. 5K. A 5K. Called the um, Quest for Life run. Yeah, but the goal is uh, kind of to help with certain things that has been have been really important to Ryan, his recovery. So, like, we want to help uh, with restorative therapy. Right, like he has so the what opportunity I do on do. Friday afternoons, you know, and it helps with, you know, a little bit of muscular atrophy, um, osteoporosis, things of that nature. And also just kind of raising awareness about spinal cord injury in general and, uh, and research uh, that's being done to hopefully help cure it one day. All right, well, thank you so much for tuning in. This is Jeremy saying, until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading. Keep reading.